staying with Simon Taylor, I'm sure some of you read his article in Motorsport at the tail end of the last year about our subject tonight. I'm sure you're going to find out a lot more about this fantastic machine. So will you please give a welcome to our very special guest tonight, Matt Holbert. Thank you very much. It's uh, both an honour and a pleasure to be back here at Brooklands, having uh, spent some time here both on the track, unfortunately not before the war. I may look old enough, but I wasn't. Uh, but uh, also in this, in this very room with some very uh, enjoyable talks. Simon Taylor, I didn't know he was coming. He's a very good friend, wonderful raconteur. And you must ask him, ask him some questions about how he feels about Bernie. Because uh, <laughs> well worth listening to, as I think my wife Madge will agree. Now, um, when I came in here tonight, uh, we did have a little trauma, as mentioned. But uh, somebody said to me at dinner, um, when did you first fall in love with ERAs? Um, I have to admit that falling in love with them came a little later, but I replied that my father had taken me to Castle Coombe when I was 10 years old, and I watched Bob Gerard win uh, in ERA R14B. I also watched Sterling Moss race a car called the G-Type ERA, which he said was one of the worst cars that he'd ever raced. But um, I must admit that my first love was actually not an ERA. And I will tell you about that in just a moment. So I call it the road to R4D because I wanted to talk a little about how I got there. Because these cars today are very valuable. Uh, sadly, they end up too often now with people who don't use them. Uh, they're locked away. A friend of mine told me about a British pension plan that has 2010 vintage, historic, and classic cars locked away in a hangar where nobody sees them. They're run on rollers every so often. And I hope they, I don't want somebody's pension to suffer, but this sort of thing really makes me ill because this is pure speculation. It's not an investment in a business that will improve our economy and provide jobs for people. And in fact, it deprives many of us of the pleasure that we get from watching these cars in action. And because they're so expensive, many people think, oh, it wouldn't be possible for me to do this. Well, I would have thought that if you'd asked me. I'm not a wealthy man at all. But I managed to work my way up, and I wanted to talk with you about that. Um, I will also cover a brief history of the car. Um, obviously, it's in the book in much more detail than I can cover tonight. There's a lot of pages there. Uh, but also, I wanted to share with you my experiences uh, with the car. And we hope that you will get decent sound. We've had, the trouble we've had is not with the projector per se, it's with the sound. And thanks to the imagination and help of several people here, we hope you will get some decent sound. So, here we go. How did I get started? Well, when I was a young man of 17, my father found a car for me. He found it in a lock-up garage, dusty, neglected. Uh, it's still in the family. It was a 1931 Alvis. Silver Eagle. Um, it's a wonderful car. I could say it's still going strong, except I had an engine rebuilt and there was a fault, so it's actually off the road at the moment. But um, it's been a source of great pleasure to me. Uh, and what you don't realize is that I left this country on July the 2nd, 1964. This is my mother in the car on the old A4. There were no motorways, and they took me to Heathrow. 
where I got on the once daily flight to New York, with BOAC as it then was, and went abroad to study. And I came back on September the 13th, 2016. So I'm now a resident again. So all of that time, I've been sort of flying in and out and trying to get things done. And I'll tell you more about that later. But these cars, Silver Eagles, were in many respects forgotten. The Elvis Register exists for cars that were built before 1932 by Alvis, and their focus is primarily on the 1250, a wonderful four-cylinder car. And in the late 50s and the 1960s, the other club, the Alvis Owners Club, was more interested in the beautiful Speed 20s and Speed 25s, 4.3s with their low, flashy lines. And in between was this six-cylinder car that started off that whole series that went right through to 1967 and the TF21. My father worked for Henley's. He knew these cars. He said, these are really good cars. And so we ended up actually with seven of them in the family. <laughs> now, we do have five kids, which partly explains it. But I decided this was a forgotten model, we should do something about it. Now my field is marketing, I was a professor of marketing and strategy. So obviously, you know, I felt the brand needed a bit of support. So um, on the 60th anniversary, we had a party at our house, and we had a lot of Silver Eagles there. And the high point, two people who many of you will know, one called Peter Hull, and the other one called Rivers Fletcher. And um, the two of them had had quite a bit to drink when they got ready to give the speech at dinner. And it was absolutely riotous occasion, I have to say. Uh, dear Peter there on the right ended up sleeping in a bathtub that night at the age of, age of about 70. A great character. But um, of course, that's a fairly mild thing to do, to have a party. So we decided in 99 we'd do something more ambitious. So we drove to the North Cape of Norway. And having done that, we thought, well, five years later, we've got to do something else. So we went around Ireland. Five years later, we went down to the Picos de Europa, which I thoroughly recommend, by the way, in Spain. Wonderful, wonderful holiday. Um, and it was so easy for me because we just booked it with Brittany. And it was a fantastic, Brittany Ferris, fantastic trip. And then in 2014, the most adventurous was a trip to Eastern Europe, which was Again, I would recommend inexpensive, people very friendly, and much to my surprise, very good food and excellent wine. So, you know, you can't beat that. So, you know, we, we basically celebrated these Silver Eagles, and my father and I, having got this car, started going to VSCC race meetings. And, of course, as a relatively young man then, I said, oh, Dad, you know, I'd like to have a go at that. He said, well, we will. But, you know, we're going to do it right, and I'll have to build the car for you. And the goal was always to have a Silver Eagle racer, which I'll talk to you about in a minute. But even in those days, it was difficult. Why? Because we said we will never break a complete car. We will collect the parts. And, in fact, we were unable to find all the parts before my father sadly <coughs> passed away. But in the meantime, he said, if you're going to start racing, I'm going to do it in something, you're going to do it in something I've been right through. And um, a magazine that some of you may remember called Pennywise Motoring. Does anybody remember Pennywise Motoring? 50p a week? No? Well, that's where we found this Alvis 1270. Uh, that sat out in the field for several years, pretty decrepit, 
but a very strong engine. And of course, again, at this time, who wanted these cars? Nobody. They all wanted the big sixes, you see. A Gondor, Polvis, Bentley, whatever. Uh, but Commander Clinker, the somewhat eccentric spares registrar of the Alvis Owners Club, said, Oh boy, they're wonderful high, you know, and you've only got four cylinders, a lot cheaper. And of course he was quite right, he built one up for his son, and so my father started building one up for me. And here he is sitting in it, this is only a year before he died, uh, on pancreatic cancer, which is one of the reasons that we collect for pancreatic cancer, um, because it is a very difficult to diagnose uh, disease. And I just mention that to you because we've lost several friends to it. And I will tell you that if it's detected in the early phases, it is completely curable in almost every case. How do you detect it? You go for a scan. And it costs a few hundred pounds. So the NHS won't pay for it. But if there's a history in your family, think about it. A few hundred quid. And you're cleared for three years. Because the problem doctors have is diagnosing this disease. So anyway, poor old dad died before it was finished. My dear wife and I, you know, here we are finishing the bonnet. You can see what we're doing. We're rolling it over a plastic pipe in time-honored tradition. And I finally got to start competing in 77. This is my first race with the car, stripped. It's not beautiful, but it's light. And eventually, um, we got it going very well because it only weighed three quarters of a ton. We fitted a full-flow exhaust, raised the compression with new pistons. And um, every time I got to Prescott was about the only event I could do because I was working so hard as a young professional overseas. Uh, but it was placed every time. But that wasn't the goal. The goal was always a Silver Eagle racer. And here's my dear wife Madge sitting in it before it was finished. Um, but during this time, I had made friends uh, with a very good friend, still is, a man called Rod Jolly, probably one of the finest coach builders in, in Britain. And um, he fell in love with the idea, so here was the car being built up. And with the aid of some other friends, we uh, finally did it. And I thought I'd show you, this is a very early piece of video. And there is no sound, so it's got nothing to do with our sound system. But I thought it would be amusing for you just to see this, because this is a very important part of the story, as you will see in a minute. That's Rod Jolly leaning over the car. This is the very first test. That's me, believe it or not, at Silverstone. And um, Paul Holdsworth, Rod Jolly's very good friend there. Um, and they've decided on this very cold day, they're going to start a methanol-burning supercharged car by pushing it. Needless to say, it did not start. <laughs> Ethanol cars are uh, quite a challenge in cold weather, I can assure you. Uh, but the other reason I want you to see this is, some of you will know Rivers Fletcher, who was a very, very good friend and passionate about Elvis's and Silver Eagles. And I was so delighted that he was there that day. And um, it was always a, a, a great supporter. I remember when the VSCC held a sprint here, um, no altars and no ERAs turned up. And in a straight quarter mile sprint, my supercharged Aldis got FTD. And Rivers came up to me and said, Oh, what wonderful news! A Silver Eagle Aldis getting FTD at Brooklyn's. And it was just a lovely guy. 
but there it is, um, about 250 brake horse, and um, I have to say not the most reliable of cars, but I'll share a bit more with you in a minute. The main reason I wanted you to see this was not only to learn the story, but to point out how it made for me two very, very special friends. The first you'll hear more about is Duncan Ricketts, because Duncan was kind enough to race this car for me one day. Uh, he had walked up to me at Prescott when I had a bit of trouble and said, can I help you? He's a very clever engineer. And he came back in from racing the car. I think he came second that time. And he said, oh, he said, it's very quick. He said, I don't like the handling. He said, Mac, if you ever get to race an ERA, you will find they dance around the corners. Now that is true of A-type and B-type ERAs. It is not true of C-type and D-type ERAs. But anyway, uh, Duncan became a very good friend who looked after the engine of R4D for me for many years. The other special friend was sort of interesting. Some of you know a man called Freddie Giles, a very successful uh, businessman farmer from the West Country. Um, he raced for many years a car called the Cognac, uh, which is um, a GM with an AC engine, basically. It's owned by Tony Lease today, still very successful. And I'd taken my car down to Pembury in 1994, and he beat me in the Cognac. This is wrong. I've been to Cologne. I know I'm quicker. Of course, that was in a straight line. It has nothing to do with cornering and braking. But I thought to myself, I know what he's done, the crafty so-and-so. You know, it's a Nash, basically. So he's changed his sprockets and lowered his axle ratio so that around this tight little Pembury circuit, he can beat me. But he doesn't know that Alvises have a fully floating rear axle. And I have a low ratio differential. So I pull my half shafts out, remove the complete assembly, plug the new assembly in, and now I've got a low axle ratio. So I go back the next year, and Freddie isn't there. <laughs> Instead, I have Mark Walker in the Parker GN, a fearsome special with a gypsy aero engine in a car that weighs far less than my Elvis. And I go out and practice, and I set a very good time, and I break a rocker. I come back in on five cylinders, despairing. And a friend of mine said, he said, what you need is the welder from Bristol. I said, who? He said, the welder from Bristol. I said, who's that? He said, oh, he's over there in that old Sentinel 9-liter diesel transporter bus that he bought from Rod Jolly. So I went over there. And the welder from Bristol welded my rocker, and I went out and I won my first trophy race. Parker GM broke down. Parker GM was even less reliable than my Alvis, I'm pleased to say. Now you might ask, who was the welder from Bristol? The welder from Bristol was a man called Julian Bronson, who has become one of my lifetime friends, just like Ron and just like Duncan. And he will enter the story multiple times in just a moment. So, the car was pretty important. Now, the main battles I had were with big Bentleys, and I don't want to offend a, a Bentley fan over here, a member of the Benchfields Club and so on, but um, actually, you'll see here, this is at Silverstone, this is Andrew Day in front with a supercharged uh, Speed 6, and our dear friend behind, Stanley Mann and his 8-liter special, and there's my little Elvis doing his best to keep up with them.
I usually beat Andrew. I didn't always beat Stanley. But it was good fun. I hope you can hear that at the back. We know it's not ideal, but we've had so much trouble. So, this is when things began to change. 98, 99. Vintage racing cars, particularly when they're highly developed, are not the most reliable of cars. And um, for some reason, the Silver Eagle Racer was broken. I don't remember why. And I called up Julian, my friend at Bristol, the welder. Actually a very successful businessman, but he's also a good welder. Does a lot of welding for me on the side. I said, Julian, I've got an entry for the vintage seaman at Donington, but my car's broken. I don't know what to do. Do you know anybody who would lend me a vintage racing car? Now, that's a sign, A, of how desperate I was, and B, how bloody cheeky I was for, you know, I lived in America for a while, you know, it does change you. I mean, I can't imagine a dyed-in-the-wool Englishman having that much cheek. But anyway, Julian said, I'll see what I can do. And, and this, to me, was an act of unbelievable generosity. Because Spencer Flack, who at that point, the late Spencer Flack, I'm sad to say, at that point I'd never met, lent me his newly completed 8-litre Bentley Special. And I went out and won the Vintage Seaman. And um, again, I was against the Nash. This was another AC engine, single-seater Nash, with my very good friend, Westy Mitchell, near neighbor, racing it. Um, but Nash is, if you'll, I hope you don't mind the interjection, not always the most reliable of cars. And uh, I have to admit, he probably had the edge on me, but luck plays a part. And here I am in a magnificent overtaking move. I'm poor old Westy. <laughs> who has two litres to my eight. <laughs> but anyway, there we are. So I went on to win, and, and not only that, um, earlier in the day I won the Alvis Jubilee race for vintage Alvises in my Alvis tour, so it was a very good day. It was a double win. That was the first occasion on which I, I was lent a car, and the reason I mention that is since then I was lent many other cars, some of them very valuable, most of them because, obviously, I'd raced R4D with some success. But I just want you to know that other people trusted me before R4D as well. Okay. Now, look at that. Where did that come from? Well, my friend Julian Bronson, now a very good friend, knew that I was still working in Australia as a consultant. And he said to me, he said, um, why don't you see if you can find a nice 50s sports car out there and we can do the Tour de France together. And what I found was the ex-Tony Gaze HWM Jaguar VPA9. Uh, Tony Gaze, as a result of this, became a very good friend, a wonderful man. Um, raced at Brooklands before the war. Uh, first Australian Formula One driver. World War II ace, top Australian ace, with a lot of kills, including two jets. His Spitfire was highly developed. He said they thought I couldn't catch them because of uh, the promoted top speed of the Spitfire was slower than the cruise speed of the 262. But he said, in a dive, I could get back 0.9. He said, I'd come down on them. And he shot down a 262 and an Arado bomber to swept wing, forward wing, uh, uh, with his Spitfire. Lovely, lovely man who authenticated the car. Um, it had been rebuilt, but never raced. 
and uh, brought it back. Julian and I co-owned it. He said, well, you run it first. So here it is on the grid at the very first Goodwood Revival of 1998, about five days after it came off the bloody boat. And I will tell you that this car went from understeer to oversteer faster than any car I have ever raced. It snapped! And why I didn't go off, I don't know. So there's a little bit of video, and you'll see I'm taking it very gently, and so would you. And what we found was that the rear suspension was asymmetric, the radius arms were of different lengths, and um, the De Dion tube was flexing because it was not stiff enough. And uh, we fixed those, and the following year it rained heavily, and my friend Julian is an ex-rally driver, and he's superb in the wet, and he took it to third place in the second Google Revival. And uh, it'll re-enter the story in a minute. Now, what you don't know is that having become friends with Duncan, he was persuading me that I should get into an ERA. And they weren't as expensive in those days as they are now. So he told me R4A was for sale. And I phoned John Venables Llewellyn from the US. And we said, I'm so sorry, Matt. It went two days ago. It was bought by Jost Will Boltson and went to Switzerland. Ah, I thought, oh, dear, dear, dear. Lovely car, gone. Anyway, about two years later, Duncan said to me, AJM1 is for sale. AJM1 was beautiful B-type, many of you would, you would know what car that is, built up uh, by Tony Merrick. 80% uh, of the parts are pre-war. Um, and he said, Peter Mann wants to sell it. I called up Peter and Peter said, no, I don't want to sell it. <laughs> so when the following year, Julian said to me, how would you like an ERA? I said, I've been trying for several years to buy one. He said, well, AGM1's available. I said, no, it isn't. I just tried to buy it. He said, he's changed his mind. It's available now. So into my life came my first ERA, just a, a beautiful car. Um, after we sold it, John Ure, who used to race it, said, by the way, I did detune it so it would be reliable for you. <laughs> John did very, very well in that car, but I could have run his neck at that point because uh, we had a good time with it, but it wasn't really as quick as we thought it should have been. But uh, anyway, um, here it is. This is um, one of my very first events in the car at Brands Hatch. Uh, it's doing something we love as a pre-war car. Delighted. Look at this. It's overtaking Michael Parr's Cooper Bristol right around the outside. Just marvellous. Just what should happen. Now, I also mentioned Rod Jolly earlier. Rod Jolly had been nagging me for a long time to um, try a rear-engine Grand Prix car, you see, uh, with the HGPCA. So, again, I was over in Australia. I made the same mistake again. I bought a car that had been supposedly rebuilt but never raced. And it was a lovely little car, but it took about four years <laughs> to get it right. Um, there's no such thing, in my opinion, as a racing car that's ready to race. I think, Julian, you'd agree with that, um, based on your experience that we were talking about earlier. Um, even cars you've seen race, somehow when you get them. But anyway, there is an exception to that, which I'll tell you about in a minute. But this was a, a, a little Cooper clone, if you like, called an LDS. Um, a South African called Douglas Surrier, 
a friend of John Cooper's, uh, built about a dozen Formula One cars. The first half dozen were, uh, in terms of body, clones of a low-line Cooper, and then he started copying Brabham's. Unfortunately, he finished this car too late for the 61 Grand Prix in South Africa. And by the time 62 came around, the Coventry Climax and BRM V8s had come out, and the four-cylinder cars were no longer competitive. But in the HGPCA, they do have their own class, and this car was very competitive in its, in its class eventually, once we got it sorted. So just a quick shot in action. Um, these are some amateur videos that I was able to get a hold of, but again, this is a brand, a pretty little car. So there we are, I was having fun, I was doing very well, and then the thunderbolt dropped. Julian Bronson called me up, he said, we've got to sell the cars. I said, why is that? I mean, we're having such a good time, we get on very well. Oh, he said, I bought a Lister Chevrolet, and I don't have the money to pay for it. <laughs> Not sure he really bought it at that point, but he claimed he had. So, it was goodbye AJM1, goodbye VPA9. Tragedy. But a man called Michael Steele had fallen in love with VPA9. And he'd owned a car called R4D for two years, and let's just put it very politely, had not been happy with it. He said to me, I got it before I was ready for it. And so the three of us sat down, I flew over in one November, we sat down in the lobby of a hotel in Cheltenham, I'll never forget it, and um, reached an agreement which involved him getting VPA9 plus a substantial amount of money which my dear wife supported me in intellectually, but not financially. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did let me mortgage the house, yes. You told me not to tell anybody that we did that. <coughs> no, what you told me was I shouldn't say that I paid it off quickly. But I did, because I was working hard and making good money at the time. But anyway, this magnificent car came into my life after a very tortuous route. I had to work my way up to it, but working your way up to it's the best way to do it. The worst way is what some of the wanker bankers do today. They make a lot of money and they say, oh, I'm going to buy myself an historic racing car, and they are a menace because they get out on the track, they don't race very often, uh, they come to the high profile events, which are the most dangerous, like Goodwood in particular, Monaco and so on. And um, I I'm personally don't like it. I mean, I, I think the people that work their way up, if you like, um, are, are much better off. A lot of modern drivers get into these cars and say, oh, they're, they're terrible, they're no good, and so on. But, you know, they're applying the standards of a modern car, which you cannot do. And these cars have their own special characteristics, their own special charm, uh, enormous history. And, uh, and it's an emotional experience that we're talking about. And I'm pleased to say that my twin sons feel that. Whenever they get into my rope going out, this is pre-war. Dad, you can feel the gears going in. Dad, you can feel the road through the steering wheel. Dad, when you press the brakes, because you get feedback through mechanical brakes. And some of you will understand that because you're old enough and some of you won't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Excuse me, but there it is, a marvelous car, you see. And um, I want to tell you a little bit about its history and then we'll talk about my experiences with it. Uh, that's my friend Duncan behind, by the way. We, uh, 
We only pick the pictures where. <laughs> but I, I do want you to notice this, okay? That's very important. You see this? I'll tell you about that later on, okay? So, there it is, R4D. It didn't begin that way. So, a brief history on ERA. Some of you will know this by heart, but those of you that don't, um, it's a, really a story of two friends, Raymond Mays and Peter Berthon. Uh, Berthon, largely self-taught, but extremely bright. I work very closely with his son, Pierre, who is another professor of business, and he is one of the brightest people I've ever worked with. He's also quite difficult to work with, all of which fits perfectly with the descriptions of Peter Berthon. Um, Mays, of course, top sprint hill climb driver in Britain in a variety of cars. And uh, they went to Victor Riley and, and Murray Jameson and between them said, you know, we're going to build a very special car. It was called the White Riley, uh, a supercharged one and a half. The one and a half sixes from Riley in ordinary form, well, my dad used to describe all small sixes as gutless. Um, they do lack torque. For people that were used to big fours or big engine cars at the time, it's something they missed. Now, we know that these engines can be highly developed. We'll see Hornet engines can be highly developed. Uh, Riley one and a half can be highly developed. But in standard form, uh, high revving, very efficient Hemi head, but just ERAs are the same. The more efficient the head, the worse the torque characteristics, basically. Um, but you supercharge them, you have something miraculous. And of course, straight out of the box, this Riley went out and broke records at Brooklands, records at Shelsley. Uh, here it is at Shelsley in the early days. And this came to the attention of a, a very wealthy businessman called Humphrey Cook. And it was Humphrey Cook who took the initiative to contact Berth on the maze and say, I'll put up the money. He was tired of seeing these wretched red cars win. He wanted to see some green cars out there because we all had to race in our national colors in those days. And uh, it was Humphrey Cook then that financed the development of a voiturette. Voiturette, if you like, is Formula 2. It's one step down uh, from Formula 1, uh, one and a half liter typically. And here are the three of them. Peter Berthon on the left, Humphrey Cook in the middle, and of course Raymond Mays with his dog on the right. Two out of three smoking, which was probably the average percent for British men at the time. Um, so, they went ahead. Berthon did the engine, Jameson did the blower, Real Relton did the chassis. In eight months, they completed the first car, which is quite staggering, I think, R1A. Um, I must admit that it was very fast in the straight line, a bit like my Elvis, but if you look at the records in the book, it didn't handle very well, and they had to do a lot of work on that Real Relton chassis to get it handling. But it set world standing start records for the one and a half liter class straight away. And um, here it is at Shelsley on 1935, uh, first appearance of an ERA at Shelsley. Um, ERAs have more FTDs there than any other car. And uh, of course R4D has most of them. But uh, this is in fact R1A. And the size of the crowd just reflect the fact that at the time there was only Brooklands. Donington was just beginning to get going, I think another year later and uh, enormous crowds. So ERAs became the Plymouth Fracturette of the 30s. They continued to compete until the formula was changed in 1952, quite successfully, uh, against the might of, of Alfa Romeo. They never really beat them, but they did get on the podium. 
And what we're very proud of is unlike Bugattis, Ferraris, Maseratis, all the rest of them, almost every ERA ever made has raced continually up until the present day. There are only two that are not active in competition. R1A, which is sadly owned by a somewhat eccentric uh, individual down in Dorset, and R12B, which was given by a wealthy Thai businessman to, businessman to the, the king of uh, Thailand, and it sits in his museum as a tribute to Prince Vera. The rest, race. Now, R4D did not exist in the early days. It was born as a B-type ERA. A B-type ERA has a beam front axle. C-types and D-types have independent front suspension. However, it was the first car <clears throat> to be fitted with a Zoller blower. Now, a Zoller is a vane-type blower, non-contact, but highly efficient compared with a roots blower, which is basically a pump. And a big, uh, big roots will absorb about 35 brake horsepower. Um, the additional power from a Zoller when they're running properly um, is about 50 to 60 brake horse because they absorb less power and they blow at a higher pressure. Small Zollers seem to work reasonably well. They're fitted to MGs and some other cars. Large Zollers were never reliable because on the inlet side they get absolutely cold and uh, they're not cold on the outlet side. And what you've got is a rather thin aluminium casing which distorts rather beautifully. And uh, we'll tell you more about that. But um, they knew that um, Maserati were working on improving their cars. They wanted to get the extra power out, and it was a cheap way to do it. So this is R4B at Shelsley in September 1935. It's its very first visit. And it equaled the record that Mays had set with R3A uh, the previous year, I think it was, no, earlier in the year, that was it, uh, on the first occasion. You can see here, we know he's doing the same thing here, nice guy. But of course that won't happen on R4D unless you have strong torsion bars. Easy on the B-Max, or not so easy with independent front. Now, they were nervous at ERA. Not a lot of money all provided by Humphrey Cook. And they knew that Maserati was moving from the 4CM, the four-cylinder car, to the 6CM with independent front suspension. And you have to remember that all the tracks in those days were much, much rougher. Sort of like the old days when we had the straight-line sprint here at Brooklyn. Oh, my God, it was rough. Not like it is today. Today, all the tracks are so smooth that, frankly, a beam axle works very well. It holds the wheels nice and upright. As long as the axle isn't too heavy, it works well. But back then, you know, nervous. So the C-type spec meant they cut off the front of the chassis, and they welded something on the front. What did they weld on? Well, dear old Peter Berthon went off to Germany and met with Dr. Porsche, and he came back with the drawings of the Auto Union front suspension. Twin trailing arms, torsion bars, and that's basically what was fitted to the C-Time ERS, identically. So R4B metamorphosed, it became R4C. And it's fair to say that because of the unreliability of the Zoller, they had some difficult times in 36 and 37. However, there was a success. And this is a lovely picture of Mays here. Very happy after winning the JCC International Trophy Race 
uh, here at Brooklands in August 1937. So I don't think they... Uh, spread the champagne around in those days if they drank it instead. But they wanted to go further. And over the winter of 37-38, further changes were made. First of all, Berthon decided that the trailing arms that Altio Union come up were too long, and they were flexing, and they needed to be shorter, and therefore stiffer. And um, they decided they needed a completely new chassis, fully boxed, supposedly lighter. <clears throat> I have to tell you that R4D is supposed to be the lightest ERA. When you were on the podium at Goodwood, which I was quite a few times, unfortunately not as often in first place, but they weigh the cars. And R4D was the heaviest car every time. because many ERAs have been super light-weighted. Can't say I approve of that, but you know, people who race seriously, they do serious things sometimes. And I know that one of the ERAs, I know who did the work, I know what it cost, and I know what it weighed at the end. It was 600 kilograms. Well, I don't know kilograms, I tend to work in 100 weights, but um, some people work that out, no doubt. The D-type spec then, still, a two-liter, it raced with multiple capacities, as you will read in the book, 1100, 1750, 1500, two-liter. A lot of the events were handicap events, so they tried to work out where they would have the best chance of winning. Uh, Hemi-head, short push rods, again, very efficient, but not necessarily best for torque. Um, the Zoller supercharger, 350, uh, 340 to 350 uh, brake horse, fully bop chassis, Conventional semi-elliptic rear suspension. What does that mean? Well, I have to tell you that the roll center of the auto union suspension is on the ground at the front. I'm seeing all these people I know here that I didn't see before. And at the back, it's right up in the air with a conventional axle. So you have something called built-in roll oversteer. Now, I was very used to that because Tony Gaze had told me all about the HWM and he said it was the worst handling car he'd ever driven and that was when it was new. And he said we had to put another set of shock absorbers on the front and he said that helped to tame it a bit. But it wasn't the best handling. Um, R4D, I will talk about in a minute, um, but there are some things about it quite exceptional. See that twin leading shoe, hydraulic brakes, front and rear. So one of the outstanding characteristics of the car is brakes. Uh, for a drum brake car, they are exceptional. And it's very quick. It was timed at over 160 before the war, and it's been timed at that since. Mays purchased the car from the works in 1939 with the help of the Prido Bruno. I thought you'd like to see this. Now, um, if you ever get to see this at the National Motor Museum, I want to tell you that British Pathé told a porky. This is a very short video of Raymond Mays breaking the record at Chelsea. And on the film, Richard Pathé says, here he is setting the record which lasted until after World War II. Oh, no, it didn't. Because you can see the car here is very light colored. It was still light green. When it set the fastest record, it was black. He came back to Chelsea later in the year and set the record that stood until after the war. But this is a record-breaking run, and it is interesting because you can see the condition of Shelsley at the time. 
And here he is, number 30, setting up that record. Looks a bit tired. <laughs> but I think Julian would agree, if you got it that sideways today, you wouldn't break a record, you know? It's, um, it's the surface that's there, and, and that's the way you drove on it. It's uh, very different today. Uh, you can see that here. Here he is drifting through the S's again, quite sideways. And obviously, there's an optimal angle of drift on these cars. If you get them too far sideways, you scrub off speed. So it's getting it just right. Anyway, um, Mays was very successful with the car, and uh, in 1946, as you can see, he set FTD at every hill climb he entered. Um, the RAC had just begun their hill climb championship, and uh, in 47 or 48, uh, he won it in the car. Now, we have a bit of film here. We don't know for sure, but we think it comes uh, from the early 40s. Um, probably 47 or 48. This is courtesy of Three the NBC. Walsh, That's Basil Davenport and Spider. We've got a camera on the car here. You can see it was pretty rough. Um, it's smoother today. I'll show you some uh, video from today. Um, Mays became quite adventurous after this. They did a complete rebuild of the car, and then he went overseas to, to Jersey, in fact, to, to race in the international races there. Remember, you couldn't race on the road in Britain, but you could in Jersey, and of course in the Isle of Man. And um, so they went through a complete rebuild, obviously a stage photo, and did something very, very expensive. They must have been running late, but they booked a, a Dakota DC-3 uh, to fly over to uh, Jersey, and you could see May standing behind with his Bentley there, and um, this is Jeff Richardson, his, uh, his favorite mechanic there. And uh, then, of course, the BRM project was beginning to take more and more time, and Mays reluctantly decided that he had to sell the car. It was sold to Ron Flocker in 1952. Now, as the book documents, the relationship between the two of them went back much further. Um, Flockhart was a very, very good engineer who had developed his own MG, raced it on the sands in Scotland, and then took it to um, rest and be thankful. Uh, I drove it uh, two years ago, no, last year, last summer, just amazing to think that they used to hill climb up there, and it's wider now and smoother than it was then, just staggering. Um, but anyway, he was there with his MG, and Raymond Mays noticed him. There are various versions of why he noticed him, because Ron was an exceptionally good-looking young man, and Doug Nye reports that he was greatly shocked when he was told why Raymond might have taken uh, a fair amount of interest in him. But uh, that's not to suggest there was anything improper, I don't think it was. Um, but he did say to Ron and his parents, you know, this man deserves to be in a single-seat racing car. And that's what got Ron Flockhart started. He went and bought a JP, which was the Scottish equivalent of a Cooper, a rear-engine car. Uh, beat Peter Collins in Dundrod, uh, very successful in the car. And then with his friend purchased uh, R1A. And then 
then he bought our 4D. And in the car on the way back, this is at Falkingham when they were trying the car out, uh, he said, uh, you don't really want to sell it, do you, Raymond? And Raymond said no. I mean, he was obviously very attached to the car, and I know exactly how he feels now I no longer have the car. 1952 was a slow start, but he went right through the car over the winter and had a brilliant 1953. 12 starts, 8 podiums, 5 firsts, two, uh, only 2 DNFs, which considering he was running with the Zoller, I find quite remarkable because he was racing the car, uh, not hill climbing it. He, he, and he did a couple of hill climbs, so uh, he worked it hard. Um, he actually beat, among others, the V16 BRM, being driven by no other than Ken Wharton, who will re-enter the story in just a moment. So here he is, as uh, a great photo, a charter hall and a full uh, drift on May the 23rd, 1953. Brilliant. His success with the car really did propel him uh, to prominence and eventually to a seat at BRM. He made the cover of Autosport, uh, in a car that was already years old. Okay. Um, and as you know, he went on to win Le Mans twice for a courier cost, competed in 14 Grand Prix. His dear friend, Hugh Lagrish, uh, who was his business partner and manager for a while, feels the worst thing that he could have done was to join BRM, because they already had two frontline drivers. And in fact, what Ron ended up doing was an enormous amount of development work for them, uh, on their cars, uh, specifically the P25 in particular. And because he was an engineer, apparently he was an exceptional uh, development driver because he was willing to, and able to come back and give excellent feedback to uh, BRM to improve the car. Uh, tragically, he um, decided he would try to break the flight record from Sydney to uh, London. He became disoriented in fog. It's a very sad story. Uh, he got as far as Athens and was held on the ground by the air traffic controllers and the engine overheated. And so he had to go back and start all over again. And he wasn't instrument rated, he went up in the fog. Um, came, instead of waiting, uh, Tony Gay said the mistake he made was not to radio and call for somebody to come up uh, who was fully instrument rated and lead him down uh, to Moorabbin Airport uh, because that's what he couldn't find. <clears throat> and instead he came down to the cloud uh, over the Dandenong Hills, a range of hills outside Melbourne. Uh, we think he opened the throttle and the torque of the Merlin and the Mustang was such that he flipped the plane and went in upside down. It's very, very sad. But there he is in happier times, a lovely man by all reports. And uh, uh, he still has people out in Australia who raced with him who remember him well. Yes, sir. Yes, 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 no. Hugh said the hardest thing he had to do in his life was to call up Gillian, and he'd only been married about a year, and tell her what had happened. Very sad. Lovely man, Hugh. Um, so, what happened then? Well, one of the people he'd beaten was Ken Wharton, and Ken Wharton, of course, an amazing record, tremendous all-rounder, national trials champion um, for several years in a row. So then he decided to have a go at hill climbing, and uh, was hill climb champion uh, for several years in a row. Uh, he purchased R4D in 1954 and set five out of six FTDs. Now this 1954, I mean this is an old car now up against modern cars. 
Um, he used it only three times in 55 because he had a Cooper, 1,000cc Cooper he used as well. But again, he, he said FTDs at two out of three events. And he ended up in a tie with Tony Marsh and the RAC in their wisdom decided to give the championship to the new guy. <laughs> uh, Ken sometimes, I think, was a bit abrasive in his desire to win by all reports. But anyway, he too um, had a sad end. I mean, he still did well in 56, three FTDs and two class wins. But the writing was beginning to be on the wall. And uh, he was killed uh, rather tragically racing a Monza uh, 750 uh, sports car in, in New Zealand. Um, the late Jack Graben said he, he feels to some extent responsible. He said he's pushing him very hard. And I think he, he took a line that he shouldn't have taken, uh, trying to keep me behind him. But um, there you go. So there's Ken hustling the car through the S's again, famous uh, shot. So what happened then was the car, of course, was less and less competitive in, in the front line. The rear engine revolution uh, was taking place. It was more and more difficult to get an ERA into a winning overall winning position uh, against modern cars. Um, Tommy Norton owned the car from 57 to 59. Uh, then Jim Berry, very well-known, very well-liked engineer. Um, Vera, after he was killed, not in the ERA, he was killed in uh, JBW Maserati at Alton Park. Um, Vera kept the car for a few years, but I don't think she ever drove it, sadly. And um, Peter Brewer, who was a car dealer who had some wonderful cars, DBR4 and some other things, uh, never successful with the car. He owned R4A, and he did quite well with R4A, but terrible time with R4D. Not successful at all. But that was a different story. Yeah. <laughs> One of our foremost historic drivers, a lovely man, um, had a succession of fabulous cars, W125, Mercedes, Auto Union, uh, raced at Le Mans, actually did one Grand Prix for his friend Colin Crabbe. Um, not a Formula One Grand Prix, but nonetheless, pretty remarkable. Um, very helpful to me in, in writing the book. Um, then bought by uh, Nigel Morris, a Littlewoods uh, uh, Pools heir, who set out to do a full rebuild on the car and uh, was killed in a road accident before it was finished. So it never really came out in his ownership. Then bought by Anthony Bamford. Willie Green raced it for him, but probably the most famous uh, driver of the car in this period uh, was Tony Maynard. Very, very successful uh, with the car. Vijay Malia bought it as part of his collection. John Harper drove it occasionally for him. Um, and then Vijay got uh, divorced and had to trim his collection down a bit. And um, it was bought by Michael Steele. My wife says I couldn't afford to divorce her, which is probably quite right. Not, not that I want to, but um, she, she does tell me that quite frequently. You couldn't afford to divorce me, so anyway. Um, Michael Steele then owned it for a couple of years, and then I had it till 2015. And today it's owned by Brian Fittler. Um, he's older than I am. He doesn't run it himself. Uh, Nick Topless has been uh, driving the car in the last year, primarily uh, in hill climbs. Lots of different drivers. Reg Parnell had one drive for Raymond Mays. Uh, Douglas Hull, Peter Hull's brother, uh, drove it. He owned R11B at the time. Jeff Richardson, John Harper, Willie Green, Martin Stratton, Mark Gillis. A lot of people have, have driven the car. We tried to give a, a more or less complete list. The book brings you right up to, when was it? Early 2016. 
because a brilliant printer, so we were able to go right up until I think April of the year. And then, uh, so uh, here's some opinions. You know, Neil was very kind to me. He said, "I remember the car with great affection." Um, now. Look at the angle of drift here. Now, I looked at this and I said, oh my God. You see, you could do that with a, a B-type or an A-type ERA. You can hang the tail right out. They are amazing cars and it will come back. Not with R4D. R4D is a bit like a Porsche. With the driver in, most of the weight is over the rear wheels. It's 45-55. Okay, and you've got rollover steer to go with it. So you can get a reasonable angle of drift, but if it goes too far, as Tony Maiman told Julian Bross, it will bite you. That's absolutely true, it will. So what I found out is that uh, Red Daniels took this photo while Neil was in the process of spinning, which he did several times during this particular race, bless him. But anyway, we don't talk about that. Willie, Fantastic drive um, in the Gold Cup at Alton Park in the wet. He came second to John Surtees in the 250F Maserati, which I think was one of Willie's greatest drives. Um, he wasn't that keen on the car. He was the one that put Neil off because at the time it, it had a big centrifugal uh, blower, um, not a Zoller, much bigger. And you could barely get your legs in and out. And he said to Neil, if you ever have a crash in this car, you'll never get out. So Willie, as soon as Bamford bought the car, he drove to Heathrow and he bought three cabin blowers. And that's when it got fitted uh, with a Rootstype blower, which it's had ever since, actually. So um, there you are, I can blame Willie for that one. But um, uh, Martin, dear old Martin, had the most brilliant drive ever. If you were at Silverstone in 99, you would not forget this. He had problems in practice, and our dear old vintage sports car club not only made him start at the back of the grid, but they gave him a 10 second penalty as well. On the first lap he was up to fifth, on the second lap he was up to third, and by the third lap he was leading. And this was against uh, Ludo Lindsay in R5B and uh, David Morris in R11B, two very, very good drivers in two very, very good two-liter uh, ERAs. It was a fantastic driver. I have a low-quality uh, video of the race. It was absolutely brilliant. And he loved it. He thought it cornered really well. Um, most people don't, but anyway, uh, that's Martin. Um, Duncan um, found it quite scary. Um, I was in hospital when we had the Martin Morris. Uh, David's father died. He was much loved in the club. And we got all the RAs out for an event at Wiscombe. And I was in hospital. Duncan drove it for me and on his first run put it straight up the bank. It still has a little scratch under the tail where it went up like that. Uh, he said he'd never driven anything quite like it. He had driven it before, but uh, as he said, the, unlike most two-liter ERAs, uh, it has two damn great carburetors, not one, but two, downdraft. And he described the throttle as an on-off switch. On-off, on-off, nothing in between. Which is a fair comment, I think, a bit that way. Um, anyway, <laughs> and uh, Mark drove it for the magazine when he was still in journalism and uh, really enjoyed it. And uh, so there we go. Um, here's Julian, this was at Monaco. Brakes were fantastic, the power systems, there he is. Handling very good if you drove it at nine tenths. If you drove it to the limit, it bit you. It's not a car to take liberties with. 
but I'll show you some of his brilliant drives in a minute. And there is one of Alan Cox's greatest photos, I think. This is uh, uh, coming over uh, the leap at Alton here. And uh, that's the late Anthony Maynard, whose, whose family were very helpful with the book. Uh, we're so grateful to them. Anthony also, this is a lovely story, he called up his cousin Chris on the Monday and said, get your passport, we're off to Germany. It's on the Monday, the meeting began on the Friday. He said, we don't have international licenses. He said, I know we don't. Don't worry, Hubertus will fix us up. Now, how he knew Count Hubertus von Donhoff, I don't know, but he has been a great sponsor of pre-war racing at the Nürburgring for many, many years. And they got to Germany, and lo and behold, um, with an ordinary British racing license, they got themselves on the grid, and uh, Tony actually went out and won. Chris told me a lot about the event. So, Anthony Maiman, extremely dedicated. Devoted an enormous amount of time to the car, an enormous amount of money to two very skilled mechanics, Jim Fitzgerald and Jeff Squirrel who worked on the car all the time. Um, there were all these rumors about changes having been made to the car. None of them had any truth at all. It was stripped by one of the VSCC's best scrutineers, Peter Wigglesworth, and he said there was only one thing he objected to at the time, uh, which was the differential that was fitted, which was not an original <laughs> lozenge type um, limited slip diff, but none of the ERAs, to my knowledge, now have one of those diffs other than GP1 because Duncan fettles the lozenge diff himself. Everybody else has fitted a different time. But anyway, um, he was very successful with the car. Um, uh, the blowers he was using were highly modified solars and uh, as Jeff put it, we couldn't make them stick together for more than one race. So in the end, they started using the roots blowers that, uh, that Willie Green had bought, in fact, uh, for reliability. And you do lose some power. I mean, you don't have 340. Things are really good. You might get 306, 308, something like that. So it's still pretty good. But uh, he won every major race. Uh, and basically, that's the form the car is in today because we made no changes from the way uh, that Michael had got it uh, from Neyman and I got it uh, from Michael. So over 300 brake horse when everything's right. Um, maximum boost about 24 PSI, weighs about three quarters of a ton, and the weight distribution with the driver in is rear weighted, which is one of the reasons why the car is so very, very quick uh, off the line. Okay. This is my first race. It's wheel to wheel. April Silverstone, 2001. Now, I had driven the car the previous day, and um, I'll show you a little bit of what happened here, because it was one of the um, more interesting ERA races. The white car is R9B, driven by John Muir, a very quick ERA driver. The light blue car you will see is R5B Remus, driven by uh, Ludo Lindsay. <laughs>
wasn't on pole, but I was on the front row, and I just engaged first gear and found myself in front. I mean, <laughs> if you're in front, you want to stay there, don't you? But you could see there, a, a B-type is always a bit quicker around the corners, but R4Ds, acceleration in a straight line, um, is very, very good. However, um, initially it was John Ure in the white ERA, so close behind me I couldn't even see him. He knew it in the double. He said, I got it. I got it right up, I knew you couldn't see me in your mirrors. Uh, and then he claims he had a problem, but anyway, he dropped back a bit. You know, you can't always believe it when drivers tell you that. Um, and I thought you'd enjoy seeing the finish. <laughs> So there you are, Ludo took up the chase, but we won by 0.15 of a second. Not only that, the supercharged Alves had won the earlier Itala Trophy race, so that was really great. Now, you see me in my racing suit there, I went from there to the showers, changed into a business suit and shoes, Madge drove me to Heathrow Airport, and I got on a plane Saturday night because I was working in Shanghai on Monday morning. <laughs> That's the way my life was. But the mobile got a lot of use between Silverstone and Heathrow, I can assure you. So let's share some things about the car. The first thing I want to share with you is the acceleration. And I will demonstrate that to you. It is truly outstanding. The second characteristic are its brakes. They are very, very good, but very prone to locking. Particularly with these non-asbestos linings, they create an enormous amount of powder. And um, that is part of the problem, not all of it. The handling, everybody says how difficult this car is. It is not difficult. I think two kinds of comparisons get made. One, people compare it to an A-type or a B-type ERA, and they are superb handling cars. Other people compare them to modern cars, which is very unfair. The handling is good. It's not exceptional. And A-types and B-types are exceptional cars. They handle, I think, better than a 250F, and that's generally reckoned to be one of the best handling front-engine Grand Prix cars. So it's good, but maybe not brilliant. But let's demonstrate the acceleration for you. This is a uh, 2012 revival, is one I cannot remember here. Getting a bit warm here, it's all the body heat up in front of me. So it's 60 watts per person, isn't it? And we have a few people here. Can you hear me all right? I'll get it back in just a minute. There we go. Um, so uh, we had problems in practice. We had to change the magneto because we started missing. So I'm not on the front row, much as I'd like to be, but I'm on the second row. So let's see what happens if I can find the rest of my equipment, which I've now put somewhere. Where did I put that there? <laughs> I put it down over there or in my pocket. There it is, underneath my coat. Thank you very much. Okay. Right. This is off the line. Um, that's R4D. This is R3A, R11B. I can't remember who that is, but it's probably Paddy. He's usually, uh, usually well up there. See, Gillis was slow away. A very good start from Paddy's darling, but a miraculously good start. From the man on the second round of the green back half, who just went straight between. This video is from David Morris's two leaders. Very few people slowing away, but 
but it was a sensational start from the second row for Matt Halbert. It is uh, quite an amazing car. This one is a Dijon 2012. Um, on the right, the red car is Tony Smith's Dino 246 Ferrari. Uh, in front is Rob Jolly, who had transmission problems, but as you will see, uh, in the Monza Lister Jack. But hidden behind him, there's another white helmet there, and that's my friend Julian Bronson and his Scarab. And um, this is from the third row. <laughs> Lights are just like Formula One, they've gone out and you'll go. Goodbye, Tony. Goodbye, Julian. But they've all got disc brakes. And notice how I leave room for Tony Smith here. You'll see in a minute how much room he leaves for me. did that is he knew he couldn't pass me down the straight because we've been at Dijon before and down the straight R4D is quicker than the 246 Ferrari. Now, I know that these are racing sports cars and I'm comparing it with a single seater but I got these numbers from Thoroughbred and Classic. Up the top you've got the quarter mile times, okay? 12.8, 7 litre, that's 500 brake horse AC Cobra, 12.4, Ferrari Racing, Ferrari Daytona, 12.8, R4D, 12.33. If you look down here, 0 to 120 miles an hour, I mean, there's no comparison, basically. It's just way, way quicker. That's because I can hold third gear to 120. <laughs> but anyway, it, it is a very uh, quick car for a pre-war car. And at Dijon in uh, 2010, uh, we were timed at 162 miles an hour down the straight. Admittedly, with a, a favorable wind, but it is an uphill straight, so uh, pretty good. Now, jo Julian, remember what he said? If you drive it at nine tenths, it's okay. If you drive it on the limit, it bites you, yes. Hmm. Here I was bitten. This is, I'll show you in a minute. It was my first uh, time down at uh, uh, the historic Grand Prix of Porto, uh, and um, there was a hidden chicane there. And I stopped about one inch from the chicane. Um, at Goodwood a few years ago, I didn't stop at all, so we'll leave that one and move on. <laughs> uh, it is not polystyrene. It is one inch sink MDF. And I think someday somebody will lose their head in that chicane because they haven't changed it, even though they've been told about it. But um, R4D is a remarkable car. It's able to race with relatively modern cars from the 50s and the early 60s and, and compete successfully. Um, now, one example of that was in 2003, we went to the Nürburgring, and I'm very proud of this one. Um, went to the Nürburgring, and it was extremely hot. It was 40 degrees Celsius, and you're well over 2,000 feet. And we couldn't start the car. It was too rich. The mixture, uh, which at that time we were mixing some acetone and toluene in uh, with the methanol. Uh, it was too rich. And we, by the time we got it started, practice was over. Now, I said I'd come back to, um, I think I told you this story earlier, Julian, but uh, Stanley Mann and Dr. Michael Rudnick, a professor from Germany, both of whom Ray spent this, came over to Julian's motorhome to get into the air conditioning. And I was already sitting in there. 
And I said, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. And Michael said, don't worry, we'll sort it out in the morning. They're just Germans. Well, he was German, of course. But, <laughs> but he had a great sense of humor. And he went in there and told them how I'd been there before and how I was a good driver. Um, the second might be true, but the first wasn't. Uh, but anyway, he got me on the grid. I was allowed to start from the back of the grid. Now, the back of the grid at Nürburgring with a big field, you're around the bloody corner. You can't even see the flag. I was right at the back. I don't know what it's, 37, 38 cars or something. Anyway, we got up to ninth in the first race, and I went from ninth to third in the second race. We beat eight 250Fs, two Connaughts, all the Coopers. Uh, there was one 250F ahead of me and uh, the Dino Ferrari. But they had had a bit of a start. I mean, uh, it's a rolling start. They always use it wrong, so I was way back. Anyway, um, I, they. Uh, it was quite funny, actually, because it was called the Ferrari Maserati Challenge. And nobody expected this car that looked a little bit like a streamlined Ferguson tractor, you know, to be, uh, to be up there on the podium with the rest of them, you see. And we had the same experience at Dijon. I mean, this car loved Dijon. And um, I was second on the grid and um, chasing uh, Walker in his Lotus 16. And he said, said to me after, he said, I looked in my mirror, I was doing 138 or whatever it was, he said, I looked in my mirror and I couldn't believe it, you were still there. So we came second in the first race against all the modern cars and uh, third in the second. Now there's no intermission, um, we're going straight on. Um, I'm doing well, we'll have plenty of time for questions, okay? I was told you didn't do intermissions here, so uh, I didn't have time to take that off because we took so long getting the uh, Porto. 2005. Now this was it's a beautiful city and um, this was fun. What they did on the very first year is they, they put back most of the course that was used for the original Portuguese Grand Prix when Jack Brabham and Sterling Moss and the rest of them uh, raced there. So it really is on the streets, through the streets, around the houses as you will see in a minute. Um, here's the track and uh, I'll just take a couple of minutes to, to go through this with you. This straight here never had a chicane originally. They went flat out all the way down, but they got nervous about us doing that, and so they put a little chicane in. And then you get into a twisty bit, um, and then as you go up the hill here, which you'll see in a minute, um, there's a sharp turn at the top where the red line is, because I couldn't get a map of the original circuit. They've changed it now. But that's a very sharp chicane, and that's a hill. Rua de Villarina is, is a hill, and that's where you can't see uh, the fact that <laughs> that's the one I forgot and almost hit in practice. Okay? There is a chicane there. Then you come down past the pits and down around the corner, and the start finish is over here, the Esplanada do Rio de Janeiro. Okay? Um, so, I'll share a little bit of this with you. Now, this was a 45-minute race, and it was about 35 Celsius, something like that. Now, normally our races are 15, 20 minutes, something like that. For 45 minutes, you actually have time to think about the strategy. Now, the thing I didn't tell you about R4D is it is a glutton for fuel. It does about a mile uh, to the gallon, depending on the circuit. If you're lucky, you might get a mile and a half to the gallon. And uh, we weren't sure, so we thought we'd put plenty of fuel in. I knew I'd be the heaviest car at the start. Because, you know, you're carrying 30 gallons of fuel. It weighs a lot. I thought, hmm, you know. I was on the second row of the grid. And I thought, right, 
burn off a bit of that fuel. Once you've burned it off, it's lovely really to be able to think about strategy because you don't normally do that. You know, five laps, ten laps, you've just got to go like hell. So burn off some of that fuel. When I'm lighter, I can really have a go at these guys in the lead. You see. So here we go. Who's in the lead is uh, my dear friend Alan Miles. Poor Alan also died of pancreatic cancer, and uh, that's why another reason why we, we collect for pancreatic cancer. But he's in the uh, 250F there. And in front is Stefan Shawak, another ex-rally driver, very good driver in his, at the time he had a 6CM, a black 6CM uh, Maserati. Okay, and here they are, they're ahead of me. <laughs> This is the long straight I showed you. And I'm very happy now because I've killed off the opposition behind and I've got them in my sights. We'll probably get up to about 140 down there. We'll finish the plane. The second half of the straight is much shorter. running at 90. I have no idea why. And I thought, hmm, how are you going to finish this race? So I had to short shift. I never used over 5,000 RPM for the rest of the race. I thought, I've got to nurse it through. I've got to nurse it through this race somehow or other. Now, i show you. Sorry. Should have done that first. You'll see a, a white flag here that means slow car on the track. And that's a Maserati. I thought it was uh, Albuquerque, but it wasn't. It was number two. Because poor Alan had been overcome by heat exhaustion. He was taken to hospital. So now I think I'm doing quite well, but I, I don't know. My picture of lost hand, but I'm pretty hopeful. We've got all the boards, but they didn't go very much. So we'll go down now past the pits. There's another chicane by the pits. Just coming up. Now some, uh, one of 
my son was with a girlfriend who couldn't make it to the cracker tent, so he watched it on national TV. He said we were kissing the paint off the tiles here. Now if you watch very carefully around this corner, down to the start of this line, you can see a black dot in the distance. And it'll get closer. That's the bloody leader that was that close. There he is. I had to tell him for a second, the poor old Stefan, he, he missed the podium he drove on. I suppose doing a lap of art. So anyway, the marshals called us in. These marshals didn't know that ERAs don't have a starter on, so they stopped me here. What they didn't realise is they're going to have to come and push me. stand and dance the podium quicker than I've ever seen the podium. <laughs> anyway, uh, it, it was wonderful. It was hot, um, but uh, it was great. I mean, Stefan and I, we both got a bottle of Portuguese champagne or whatever they call it. You can't call it that now, can you? But fizzy. And we both agreed we wouldn't waste it. And we beat all the modern cars, which is just, you know, we just love them. When we do that. So that was, um, that was the first uh, Grand Prix of Porto. Um, another beautiful city. Uh, is Po in southwest France. Uh, they've been running Grand Prix there a lot longer than Monaco. Uh, in fact, Lewis Hamilton raced there the year before he joined Formula One. And I uh, thought I'd share just a little bit of this with you because, again, the street circuits are very, very interesting. Um, this is the circuit. You can see the start finish straight down to the station hairpin. Uh, what you can't see is that's a big hill up to Pont Escar. You go under a bridge. Uh, up to high school, the corner is so tight an ERA can barely get around, but you daren't, in most cars, you would just belt it in first gear and spin the tail out. You do that with a pre-selector box, which is on the limit, 300 brake horse ERA, you just blow your gearbox up, so you can't do it, so you've got to be quite gentle. Uh, and then you go past the casino, through the park, and, and down here, uh, so it's all real roads, okay? So a little bit of excitement at the start here. Um, what we've got, again, I had brake problems in practice, so I'm down on the grid, but, um, oh, what happened there? That shouldn't have happened, come on. That's a 250F Maserati on the left, and a Gordini with a big car on the right. And most of the events in Europe have been rolling starts, which I don't like, because it negates one of the great advantages of our 4 and you can't see the start most of the time anyway, it's just when they start speeding up, you start speeding up. Here we go, we pissed off the funnel, we pissed off the Gardini, and now we're behind the Maserati. Now watch him, this is Willie Bolts, as he goes up the hill, he's got two nipple wristers in front of him. Watching this and thinking, uh, not sure. That one on the right, Hulk Grant, another good driver, he takes him on the left. 
now we're under the bridge. And up to the high school airport. Keep your eye on the red car if you can still spot it up there. One, two, three ahead. Actually, uh, Paul Branton, he actually hit. Um, yeah, Willie was a bit silly. He was on um, cold tires and uh, not a good idea. Um, and here's another one. This is uh, the second race here. And we've moved up the grid a bit. On the right is a Tipo B with Matt Grist, 400 brake horse, good driver. Remember, Julian's not used to driving the car, so he's a bit slow off the line. I love this shot of the cars coming up the hill. Here, Matt was on Julian's tail for virtually the whole race. 
Deux concurrents se sont échappés, ceux d'ailleurs qui occupaient les premières lignes sur la ville. En l'occurrence, Monaco, très important d'être en pôle si vous pouvez l'arriver. Et Thierry est arrivé là et a eu une très bonne course. Mais vous voyez ce ici. Incontestable de la meute qui ne laisse aucun suspense dans l'attribution de la victoire finale. Le pilote de l'ERA est en s'étant débarrassé de la pression de son principal rival. Yeah, there it goes. Now, it took us a while to find out what was happening, why it would lock on one wheel, sometimes the left, sometimes the right, it's got big bushes in there, and one of the bushes is a bit sticky, so sometimes the wheel very good race, went back in 2010, Julian had an easy time. In 2000, I didn't bother to go even though, but Madge wanted to go to the party again. So we went back in 2012. And this was two of my very good friends, Julian Bronson on the right, uh, Paddin Dowling, an Irishman who, who lives in America like I did for many years. Uh, he's in only a one and a half liter ERA, R10B, but it's very light and he's a very good driver. And what happened in practice was Julian was sitting back thinking he'd got fastest lap and he'd be okay. And towards the end of the practice, we found out that Paddins had done a faster lap. <laughs> Julian doesn't always move very quickly when he's not in a car. Um, so we really had to push him, because he's quite a large man, uh, to get him quickly into the car. And he literally passed the flag 10 seconds before practice ended. He literally just made it. And he went out and did the fastest lap ever by a pre-1948 car and got himself on pole again. And this race was the most horrible thing to watch. You would much rather be in the car racing yourself than watch two of your best friends out there racing against each other. She didn't mind because she worries when I'm in the car. I worry when I'm not in the car. Anyway, um, here we go. Ce sont les ERA de type B ou D qui occupent les premières lignes de la grille avec un avantage à Pat Dowling, l'américain, et à Julian Bronson, sous licence britannique, qui sont les plus vifs au départ et sont les plus vifs au départ. Ils sont les plus vifs au départ. Ils sont les plus vifs au départ. In um, uh, some Monza, I think I don't know, don't remember. But I want you to watch. Blue flag means somebody's ready to overtake. A waved blue flag means they're right behind you. And just like Formula One, when the leaders come along, you're supposed to get out of the way. Now you can see here that Paddins is back behind the Parnell MG, the light blue car at the back. So Julian has built with. A lot of good driving and hard work, about five car length lead at this point. Watch what happens. C'est un repos de courte durée car c'est une nouvelle vague de concurrents qu'il faut doubler dans la partie haute du tracé. A l'instar de la vénérable Alfa Romeo 8C, Monza de Vittorio Gallo, dont le pilote l'allemand Frank Stipler fait au mieux pour éviter de tenir l'arbitre dans cette lutte pour la victoire. Fourth wave, blue. 
Un nouvel épisode qui regroupe les leaders et nous offre un final à suspense, même si à quel So that was the hat trick. Julian had won there with R14B for Donald Day, so they made him a life member of the Automobile Club of Monaco. And he's welcome to it, frankly. <laughs> there you go. Um, they do have good parties, Madge tells me. I don't remember most of it. Um, so, uh, Goodwood. All right, the Festival of Speed uh, disgraced herself in 2012. We were asked back, and she decided to leak some water and hydraulic. And we were asked back because R4D had set the fastest time ever by a pre-war car up the so-called hill climb, which is mainly flat. Um, but, you know, it's pretty quick. And uh, the first four runs, we caught up the car in front. I remember that in 2008. We finally convinced them that they had to give us more space. R4D was quick enough, it would have been placed fourth in the 1980s Grand Prix class. Uh, crossed the line at 111, which was, uh, which was pretty good going. Um, but uh, Goodwood Circuit, Goodwood 2011, you all, I think, probably know this circuit. It's very fast. Um, and uh, you know, March is a, a great entrepreneur. I must say, the character of the whole event has changed dramatically. You know, the first year there were 30-odd thousand people, and he said, this will never be commercial. <laughs> now, I think we have people who come there and never even get out of the commercial area, or never even cross the road. Um, it's sort of becoming too much like the Silverstone Classic to me, where, you know, the people who are there, a lot of them, aren't really interested in the racing of historic cars. It's sad, but, you know, they're business people, and he's saved the estate from bankruptcy, and he's brilliant, he's a great entrepreneur. It doesn't mean that I enjoy it as much as I did, it's just changed in character, and, and the same thing with Goose and, uh, and Silverstone Classic, great big event, and lots of things for lots of people, I'm getting old-fashioned, I suppose, maybe I always was, I don't know. Anyway, um, here we are, Goodwood Revival. Um, 2011. Now, we had a wet Goodwood Trophy this last year, but it wasn't like 2011. In 2011, we went in for our briefing, which you do right before the race, and it was absolutely dry. And literally, as we walked out of the briefing hut, the heavens opened, and it teemed down, pouring wet. I thought, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. So, here's how we go. The Goodwood Trophy for Grand Prix cars and quaturettes, that's Formula One cars and Formula Two cars of their day, if you like, on pole position, Adam Starling with the ERA, then Adam's my friend. Gantz Stipler is a work Saudi driver, very good driver, nice driver. Michael Gantz, the ERA, Swiss star with uh, Mullins next to him, uh, and then Dominic Ricketts with the E-Type ERA is on row three with Rainer Ott's B-Type ERA, and Julian Bajuna with the straight eight alpha. We've got a green flag at the back, a damp, tricky surface, they all move so forward. Well, I can't get off the line and beat everybody. The Goldwing Trophy, uh, Pan and Starling on the left of the picture has the lead, and Mac Harmon is challenging him. It's Darling from Har
He got the nose. Julian Bajoub got the nose on the inside. Oh, a huge, understeering moment. Um, what Simon didn't know was going, it's a downhill into Lavant, which is a negative camber corner, and I was cadence braking because I was aquaplaning all the way down. And I ended up, I thought I was going on the grass, so was, if you look at it, it's about an inch off. On the other hand, Julian is completely out of control, I'm full lock, full understeer, and I braked, thank God I didn't hit him, and he did come up and apologise afterwards. But that's what happens when you're racing sometimes. Anyway, um, let's see where we go from there. Um, Frank Stippler is having an inspired run but they're almost side by side in the older three leagues of Maserati. Maserati has gone through into third place. That's Frank Stippler. And we've got a change of leader because Mac Hubbard's gone ahead as well. Mac Hubbard has gone ahead of the Alfa Romeo. A wonderful piece of driving on this that around the inside of four water, but the track is slowly flying, and I think the Dunlop tyres are coming back a bit. I don't think he knew I was there, to be honest. I don't think Julian Bajou was expecting that. A wonderful piece of driving. Back home, having an inspired race. There they are, all four on the screen. Albert, Bajou, Stickler, and Garrett, all tied together in the lead of the quartet. Now you can see how close. Frank is having a go now at Julian. I'm looking in my mirror thinking, that's bloody great. Because they're going to be preoccupied with each other. And the biggest risk you've got is going off the track. And I read afterwards what uh, the great one Manuel Fangio said. He said, you should win by the minimum necessary distance. I hadn't read that before, but I knew what the big risk was. So uh, um, here we are. And you'll see, it was still very slippery even here. And Julian Bajou under attack yet again from the HCF Maserati. And while that leading quartet are battling, the man who's actually quickest on the track, or was on the last lap, was our fifth place man, Paul Mullins, in the white ERA. But he's now about 3.3 seconds further back. Hulbert, Bashu. Now we're beginning to lap uh, more tail ends here. Number 23, that's by And I wonder what state the rear tyres are on uh, Julian Lejeune's car because he's been travelling so sideways, so indeed has Michael Gans just getting very sideways there. That's Tom Dark in the, in the uh, big Bugatti uh, there. The he's very good. He's very good. That's Tim Duck in the big T54. Not a problem, but uh, there in the big the it's a different kettle of fish. Unfortunately, I can see I can't get by him before the chicane. I don't want to hit the chicane again. But he's very slow here. And then quite quick, which is put out. And the alpha's closed right up again. Is there a checkered flag? Now, Holbert was overtaking the Largo. He didn't see the track, so Holbert's still racing here, looking in the mirror, saying, What the hell was the But I was very pleased with that one, because the win in the weight in our 14th. That was good. That was good.
But of all the, all the venues I've been at, really, there's no doubt that the natural home of this car is Chelsea Bosch. As I mentioned earlier, it has more FTDs there uh, than any other car in history. And that's not just, um, forget the historic period, if you like. We're talking about in period, uh, way ahead of anybody else. And um, the wonderful thing about Chelsea is it, it hasn't changed much. Yes, the track's smoother, but the rest of it is just the way it was. Whereas Prescott, you know, they've got Arco all the way up now. Most of, many of the trees have been cut down. It's a beautiful place. Um, and I'm a life member, but it's not quite the same as Shelsley, particularly for this car, because Shelsley is a real power hill, as Julian will tell you, and it, and it really suits the car. Whereas um, Prescott is a handling hill, and uh, that gives an advantage to the A's and B types. Um, but you don't need to recreate. You don't have to do what March does because you've already got it. It's, it's just that way. Um, this was the Jubilee 100th anniversary meeting where we were able to run unsilenced. I'll show you that in a minute. Um, that's David Ellison there. He wears hearing aids now. Um, <laughs> Robin Baker measured the noise of the car unsilenced taking off the line. It's 165 decibels. <laughs> which is the same as a Harrier jet taking off, apparently. That's what he told me, so. Um, and, you know, we're not allowed to warm tires the modern way, so we do it the traditional way. I must admit, until I saw that photo, I had no idea how much smoke we were making, but. Um, I just took this one down off the internet, but it's the only film I have of the Jubilee uh, when we were running on silence. This is, in fact, in practice, but I just thought you'd enjoy the sound. <laughs> showing you this is I worked after I retired from Columbia in uh, Manhattan um, Peking University picked me up so I used to fly in and out doing short courses in the winter so I could keep the racing season clear but never never go to Beijing between November and March I mean you've read about the pollution it's horrifying but anyway um, Star TV has the Formula One there and every race meeting they have a little film at the start like the BBC and we're watching Chinese TV, Madge and I said, Madge, there's our 4D. <laughs> and believe it or not, they wouldn't know what this is in China, but it, it is just this bit off the line here. They have to show there. And here you can see up the top of the hill, which people don't normally see. Uh, big crowds there, because this was on the actual day. And um, they had to open up two more fields. Uh, they lost count of the number of people at that uh, Jubilee meeting. But I thought the sort of final bit of in-car video I should show you is um, going up the hill in R4D. It's this spiritual home of the car. And um, you'll see the tire warming here. I try to do three, but sometimes I can't do two. And this bell helmet fogs up, so I have to raise the visor and then pull it down when it goes green. That's why I'm fiddling with it. So I want to be able to see where you're going. Second into third now. 
crossing, bit of opposite mark here. On a good day, we hit 90 miles an hour there on the tramps, and then you break heavily through the S's. Stay clear of the bank and the grating. Then into third gear, we cross the line at about 101 on a good day, and then you try to stop. That's it, I mean, British Hill Climbs, 33 seconds, I mean, it's not much time. <laughs> and no room for mistakes, um, which is why Mays always felt it was the most demanding uh, kind of. These are just some of the records we set um, while I had the car. It was a car that was very good to me, even though it cost money, it was just a joy uh, to drive. And because of it, I just had an amazing opportunity to drive other cars. So um, from those humble beginnings I showed you, I've raced cars in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and even the 80s, um, which is pretty good for a, a, a lad that started in a home-built special. And I've been able to race at a lot of wonderful uh, venues around the world, uh, and also to race a terrific variety of cars. Um, all of those have been lent to me by, by wonderful friends. Uh, you know, that's one of the greatest things about our hobby, the people you meet, the connections you make, the friendships that you develop. My last FTD was right here at Brooklands in uh, 2014, and um, I parted with the car at the end of 2015. My very last event uh, was at Shelsley. I called them up and said, I want to run on silence. And they said, that's okay with us as long as you do a demo. Now, a piece of information for those of you that compete, the MSA has no noise jurisdiction over cars running demonstrations. Their jurisdiction... Well, I thought you'd like to, you know, if you want to hear racing the way it was, and that's what I wanted to do on that, on that last day. I had a, a wonderful day there, and I'm very pleased to tell you that R4D's time, even though it was a demo, they don't publish it on the Sunday, I saw it. And it was quicker than every car up until 1965. Um, so we were beaten by a few marchers and chevrons, but that was about it. So I was very pleased. So there it is, home after the very last event uh, in my ownership. And, um, you know, one of the things I read when I was out in Australia was a, a book by a, a man who had very modest beginnings and a very, very hard life by any normal consideration at all, you would say, this man really suffered. And yet, he called his book, Fortunate Life. And uh, I think I've been very lucky, I've had a very fortunate life. Thank you for spending the time with me. I'm delighted to answer any questions. Hope I haven't bored you. If you have to leave to go to the toilet, get a beer or go home, please feel free to do so. I think that says it all actually, nearly two hours, fantastic, thank you very much indeed.